Hi, Jeff. Uh, Hi, welcome Carl. to Talking Teaching. Um, if you could give us a brief introduction of yourself before we get started, uh, letting people know who you are, please. Sure. Um, well, I, uh, I came into ELT a lot like uh, many of my generation by accident. I sort of fell into it. Um, uh, I had to leave uh, England in the middle 70s, so things were a bit hot for me. I was involved in uh, radical politics. My academic career got a kick in the teeth when I was uh, um, chucked out. So, and there was that too and all sorts of stuff. So I came to Spain with my partner um, and we settled in Barcelona and I got a job after a year in a marvelous school called the Saudi Idiomas, which was really tremendous. Okay. Um, so I worked there as a language teacher for um, a long time. Um, and after about uh, 10, 12 years, um, I became a director of studies. Um, with my boss, we uh, did a master's program, a master's in um, applied linguistics and, and uh, teaching English as a second language. Um, and then I decided to do the course myself as a kind of guinea pig. So I did the, the master's myself and um, after the master's, I did a PhD. So um, um, at the end of it all, I, I, things were going pretty badly in Asadi. Um, and so I left and I'm now back um, rather than where I was <laughs> uh, 40 more years ago uh, in a much more academic uh, setting. So that's it. I've, I've spent the last um, 40 years or so here in Spain, uh, dedicated my getting my uh, my living from English language teaching. Mm -hmm. Did my time at the chalk face. Uh, really enjoyed it as a as a teacher. Okay. Got into a slightly more managerial role, and, and now I've ended up in a, in a rather sort of part-time academic position and now applied, uh, uh, sorry, uh, associate tutor at Leicester University in the distance learning uh, degree that they do. Okay. Um, okay, a couple of things about the, the study or career that, that uh, stick out, peak out there. Uh, you said that you, um, Obviously, you, you came from a different career, so you had a different, you were in a different line of work or a different field beforehand, um, and you kind of came to the English teaching uh, unplanned, as it were. Um, and as you said, you know, that's true for uh, perhaps a lot of your peers at the time. Um, it still tends to be quite true now. Um, and I wonder what you think of that. Um, when I sort of meet teachers here, there's a question I used to ask a lot, and I, I ask it less now. Um, I used to ask teachers, you know, did you always want to be a teacher? Um, kind of hoping to find the, the passion and the drive for teaching. Um, and I often, if, if I was in a room of 200 teachers, maybe, you know, something like 10 to 20 of them would say, yes, I always wanted to be a teacher. And the rest um, really had no intention of teaching, but they ended up teaching. Um, and I used to kind of use that as a jump off point for some of the discussions I'd have. Um, 
But the truth is, neither did I actually. I mean, I find when I really thought about it, it depends how far back one goes. Because when I left school, I was really glad to get out of school. Um, and the idea of going back to school and uh, teaching and spending, having a career in, in the school environment um, was, you know, nowhere in my purview at the time. Um, and then I later found that initially through some youth work that I did and some social work that I got started into, I found that, you know, the education, the teaching was for me. So by the time I got into teaching, it was because I was, because that's what I wanted to do. Um, uh, but there's, there's a lot of different pathways into teaching and a lot of people get here by very different means. Um, so what do you think about, what was that like for you? Uh, did you find very quickly that teaching was something you enjoyed doing or did you spend a long time uh, just doing it because it was your job? How did that early process feel for you? Well, I, um, I really enjoyed it enormously. Um, when I went to Ishadi, uh, I, I thought I'd uh, kind of gone to heaven. Um, it was the best teacher's room I'd ever been in by a country mile. It was just absolutely marvellous. There were about uh, 30, 35 teachers there, um, all really keen. Uh, we were paid very well. We had tremendous uh, back support. Um, and we were, it was in the period, um, the beginning of the 80s, right when uh, late 70s, early 80s, where there was a huge explosion of interest in uh, community language teaching of various mm. sorts, you know, all these wacky new methods like total physical response and uh, continuous silent way and current uh, community language way, all this stuff. So there was real enthusiasm. We were really keen. We used to sit up till midnight talking about it all, you know, what yeah, to do, right. did wow. this work, did that work, what was the place of grandma, should we be doing this? Uh -huh. It was just tremendous. So um, I, uh, I fell into it. I had done a bit of teaching before in England, um, what's called supply teaching, where you yeah, right. um, go in for people who are ill. And I really didn't like it at all. I, really I remember as a student really not liking the supply teachers <laughs> when they would come in. <laughs> oh, God. I remember my first one. I went to Brixton, which was pretty rough back then. Oh, nice. Yeah. Up a bit gentrified. <laughs> sure. But in those days, it was really rough. And um, I went to the headmaster before the day started and said, what do you want me to do? He said, I want you to prevent a riot. <laughs> so what a way I to cut no, your teeth, eh? Crikey. He had no expectations of me teaching anything, you know, just, <laughs> just stop them from burning the place down. Um, it was really awful. So I was really uh, delighted to be in this um, new environment where right, right. teachers were really doing some interesting stuff and we taught them. It, it was just terrific. I loved it. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, that's great. I say most of the teachers there, partly it was because we were treated so well. We were definitely the best um, school. We, had, we were paid the best money. Mm -hmm. um, so we were really looked after. That was part of it, obviously. Yeah. But it was, it was just that uh, everybody there, well, nearly everybody, of course, the one or two cynical, you know. <laughs> but um, in general, the, it, was, it was terrific. Uh, and I... I, I I, I can say for the rest of the teachers, the vast majority of them were really dedicated teachers who 
who, who were honestly, sincerely uh, interested in helping as yeah. much as they could for their teachers, yeah. their students. Was one. Yeah. Yeah, that's that community, I think, is very important. It sounds like there's a bit of a chicken and egg situation there where um, the community uh, made you feel, you know, you enjoyed that experience and you felt perhaps more worthwhile by being a part of it. Um, as you say, you know, the pay was good. Um, you were well looked after. It's hard to know which of those comes first, because obviously, if there are good conditions, good, you know, good pay, good working conditions is going to attract the, you know, the, the, the better the more dedicated yes. teachers, perhaps, um, because well, it's a sort of vicious circle, or a, yeah, or a right, virtuous circle, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. You know, I was lucky to be in that kind of virtuous, so where, yeah, right, yeah, you know, it fell off. Yeah, just that, that's the kind of thing, and, and you meet now uh, exactly the opposite, where people yeah. teachers are terrible conditions, terrible pay, yeah. low motivation, and 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 that's a kind of the opposite, a sort of vicious. Yeah. Circle. Yeah, I mean, most of my experience when I've worked in, now I, I work for myself, essentially. Um, when I've worked in schools where there has been a, a staff room, a teacher's room, um, I've largely been in the exact opposite. Uh, it's been a very kind of commodified experience. So we've, you know, as, as a teacher, never particularly felt valued beyond uh, the selling power on, on, on the market front, you know. Um, and the other teachers that I was working alongside, um, I mean, to date, I've, you know, I've picked up two of my closest friends um, from there. So it wasn't a complete, um, you know, it wasn't a complete dearth of, of talent and, and passion. Uh, some of the best teachers that I know, but the majority, you know, out, out of, say, 18 teachers that I worked alongside in that couple of institutions, uh, the, you know, really only two that stand out as being, you know, truly passionate about teaching, caring about the mm -hmm. students and the rest were, um, either traveling or getting away from something or it was an easy option you know that's been uh, sadly been my experience um and and again you know it, it seems like it's no coincidence um that all of that happened within a couple of institutions that clearly didn't really care either you know didn't didn't value the teachers didn't seem to really value yeah. education either it was just a business model yeah 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 so the other thing i noticed um unless i'm mistaken here I, before you got into it uh what you what you um kind of the career you moved away from beforehand was that an academic career as well yes um i was at the london school of economics and i was in the um philosophy department which mm. because it had popper the famous Karl popper and uh Lackintosh oh, well, yeah, okay. and firearm and, uh, among the staff was oh, yeah. um a philosophy of science and um i was uh going to do a, a, a doctorate in with Popper. Uh, actually, Lakatos should have been my supervisor, but then I got called up in this um, 1968, you know, the famous 1968 <laughs> uh, sure. revolutionary uh -huh. Uh -huh. stuff that went on in France and in, in a lot of universities. And LSE was particularly hit. We actually right. sat, did a sit-in, we closed the university, um, and I was kind of uh, named as one of the ringleaders. And then <laughs> okay. I got, with <laughs> uh, put paid to my, uh, my doctorate, I was kicked out. Um, and then I got involved uh, trying to defend a few people who were quite wrongly uh, accused of being part of uh, uh, the Anger Brigade. 
Mm -hmm. uh, but that brought its own uh, pressures on me. You know, the police, sure. sort of, I had someone following me. It was all very uncomfortable. Wow, yeah, right. Okay. So, but yes, I did have, I had the, <laughs> the early makings of an academic career. Um, and then when I left uh, England, uh, I really, you know, the, the staff room in Asadi and, and the teaching there was terrific. Energetic, okay, yeah, yeah, wonderful, but it wasn't academic. The, yeah, um, the weren't, you know, um, of all the people in that staff room, when we got to our um, uh, biggest, there were perhaps 70 teachers, um, right. not just English. English was far the biggest, but it also we did French and Spanish, and uh, we had a Russian teacher. And of all of those, I would say no more than 15 had masters. And right. uh, probably um, at least a third, probably more, who didn't have a degree. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't um, an academic uh, environment. It wasn't had, didn't have people talking about, you know, the difference between sort of uh, Winterson and and Candlin and, and uh, Cook and stuff like that. It was much more. Um, we, we were much more that. concerned with, with basic English language teaching yeah. methodology, right. if you like. Yeah. Methodology yeah. And, yeah. And, and syllabus design. Yeah. What, what, what's the best way to do it? it you know, yeah. people were going, starting to criticize drills and uh, right. PPP approach and that sort of stuff mm -hmm. and moving much more towards trying to help people with uh, this new idea of communicative competence, you know, which, right. which right. came along at that, that time. So that was, it wasn't uh, academic like my background had been. So, um, perhaps there were one or two academically inclined people with a bit of, right. a, you know, probably the majority had, it was interesting, um, some kind of checkered stuff going on in their background. Yeah, yeah, know, yeah. I think the industry is, uh, is, is somewhat renowned for it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so do, do you think, was, was there a sense that, uh, obviously you later then moved on to, set the the master's degree up uh in in your center um yes. and, and then you yourself did that and, and went on to do the phd do what do you think that uh was that just a natural progression do you think that the academic your academic past was calling to you was it something that you had missed throughout that experience do you feel that that's kind of where you belonged yeah yes absolutely i i was always um that's really my what I like most, you know, right. um, I really, I, I, I can't say too much how much I enjoyed teaching. Um, although I wasn't uh, as good as it as a lot of them, I have to confess. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've seen a few really, really good language teachers and yeah, uh, right. I, I'm not in their class. Um, I mean, I was competent and so on. I really enjoyed it. I was enthusiastic and so on. I was committed. Right. Mm -hmm. But um, my real, the thing I love most is, is being in a library, reading books, thinking about right. it, you know, writing. So yes, actually I'm, I, I, I feel that that's my, my kind of obvious, my natural thing is to be an academic. Sure. And when the masters came along, uh, it was just a terrific opportunity for me. First to meet all the, the top people in uh, academic, uh, in applied linguistics. We had a tremendous uh, range of really good uh, scholars, the very best that were out there at the time. I'm talking now, I think we started perhaps in 1988, somewhere around there, just before the, the 90s. So there was 
still a lot of uh, new interest. We had, yeah, um, sure. You know, there was such a lot going on, uh, and particularly, of course, um, development in SLA, right. um, second language acquisition theory. Um, it started only in, it's very young, uh, 60 years old now, I suppose. So yeah. it started in the, in the 60s right. um, and developed with people, you know, the Candlin, Widdison, people like that, and then moved into people who were more interested. Candlin and Widdison were both very sort of philosophical. Right. Then there became much more harder quantitative research stuff went on and started right. with the, you know, the morphine studies in the 1970s, moving on to stuff like Peenemann's uh, research uh, in the 1980s, where people were actually uh, taking a, as scientific a, a view as they could, which meant right. that they were interested in measurable empirical studies right. yeah, where yeah. you tried as hard as you could to get solid evidence and mm. a, a pretty good scientific method in the sense that your idea was to have a hypothesis yeah. and then test the hypothesis. Good, yeah, and good. Are, um, of course, fashion's theory is not very good in that sense. It's almost untestable. But nevertheless, there was that move towards a, a more quantitative, more carefully, scientifically um, engaged approach to, to studying. And those are the sort of people who we had um, on our program, right. and I used to, you know, I mean, I hardly went to bed, you know, I used to follow them around like a puppy. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, it was just terrific. Uh, you know, we had a very good social program. We went out in the evenings. We had, okay. you know, uh, it was it was just marvelous. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that yes, that I felt when I did the masters, I felt like I was sort of, you know, going back to where I belonged. And yeah, at the yeah, end good. Of it, I got a lot of support from, I did my master's, the master's was at the Internet, um, Institute of Education in London. And mm -hmm. at that time there was Widdison, Guy Cook, um, uh, was, um, Peter Skeen, very strong um, department. Right. And um, Widdison was my, very, very decent of him. He, he didn't usually take MA people's uh, TTs. <clears throat> he just dealt with the with the, with the doctor, right? But he uh, he I was uh, his um, uh, duty, and at the end of it, uh, he and um, I got a lot of support from Mike Long, who came okay. to do the Summer Institute, and we became friends partly because he's an anarchist, and we used to go up and um, go to visit Durutti's grave at the uh, okay. cemetery in. Um, so I got all the, uh, Mike said to me, you really must earn them, Widdison and, and, and Steen and so on, uh, gave me a lot of support and so did the school. My boss uh, said, yeah, go on, do it. Um, so I did the, I did my uh, PhD at the same place at the in uh, Institute of Education. Right, okay. um, and then once I'd done all that, well, I really did feel, uh, I did a module in the, uh, I, I taught the masters myself after mm -hmm. that for, okay. for a little bit um, and then I um, things were falling apart a bit in Saudi by that time uh, so um, and I was getting on um, so uh, I moved into uh, I, I got a job with Leicester University the job I'm still doing now after mm -hmm. 20 years 
um, and uh, started writing a bit more again. Yeah, okay. So full circle in the end there. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. And then... And, yeah, go on. Um, yeah, so, so you said about, um, you know, when, by the time you set the, uh, the master's program up, you said there was still a lot of interest and a lot of developing interest in the field. Um, when you moved out there and first got into language teaching, um, that was around about kind of the birth of the, the EFL field as it is now, perhaps, right? That's when uh, I have a sense that we might talk about it uh, saying that the EFL uh, feel kind of broke away from mainstream education in a way, right? It sort of became its own thing, um, developing new methodologies and approaches, and it became this global industry. Um, and you must have been there, kind of for the for the for the birth of that, almost. And then by the yes. time you set your master's program up, um, a lot of the things that you had seen in their fledgling kind of ideas. By then, presumably, some of that had, had, had kind of uh, cemented and become the uh, the endorsed and uh, mainstream ways. Is that is that about right? Well, in fact, um, here's another circle actually, because what I saw was the rise and fall of mm. uh, cognitive language teaching right. and the uh, persistence of what we have today, which is uh, coursebook-driven ELT. Right. So when I started, actually, the first thing I did just before I left England was I did a course at the International House in um, London, a course, uh, a month, very intensive course, crazy. Uh, almost like being in some sect, actually, very <laughs> intense. Um, uh, but anyway, I did this course and then the method was situational uh, language teaching. This was uh, started by Hornby, I think, in 1953, um, and then developed by people like Neil, Neil's Colonel Lessons, I remember. Uh, and the idea is that you contextualize the bit of the language that you want to concentrate on. Right. So um, if it's uh, the present tense, then you have characters doing things in the pajamas at the office. Right. Uh, he goes yeah. to the office by car, he arrives. And this is as opposed to the sort of the direct grammar method That's of just right. putting the it formula. That's right, it took over the from right. direct, or, before that it was audiolingual. Okay. Um, uh, and, and so on, and, and, and as you say, direct method. Although we could maybe include situational language as, as kind of direct method because they, they they really didn't, um, they discouraged a lot the uh, use of the, the L1. So right. based on a kind of behavioristic um, model of, of, of language learning. Mm -hmm. So there it was, that was the method that you introduced something and then you, you know, you say, okay, as I say, John's in his office, uh, Peter's at school, mummy's in the kitchen. <laughs> Uh, she she's a very good cook so that was the method um, so it was uh, situational language and essentially it was um, it was PPP presentation practice mm -hmm. and production although um, it, it's important to say they didn't walk in and say here's the present perfect they'd say right um, I arrived in Barcelona in 1925 
and I have been here for six years. I've okay. lived in that, so they would actually contextualize it. Yeah, say, right. All right, let's have a look at this. We've got the present right, tense, yeah. we've got the verb to be, then we've got the past participle, blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> well, that was what um, I did when I arrived in Asadi. But then in the late 70s and early 80s, as I said, there was this explosion uh, of method. But essentially, what drove it was the new ideas of Canelli and Swain and, uh, uh, and the ideas of. Um, communicative language, which is communicative competence. Mm. You know, there was this thing about, well, Chomsky talks about uh, linguistic competence, but um, what we need to talk about is in, in terms of language teaching is communicative competence. It's not just yeah. what you know about the language, it's your, your ability to use it. Yes. So there's this shift from talking about the language to, to students talking in the language. Yeah, you know, yeah. Giving yeah. them the opportunity to talk giving them the, sort of handing the ball over a bit, making it more student-centered mm -hmm. uh, and so on. So that was the enormous shift and that right. was what made it so exciting. Everybody had their own different ways of doing it. So Gitengo, for example, was a silent way. The teacher didn't right. say a damn word, it pointed right. at stuff and the teachers yeah. had to, and the students had to do it all. A little bit similar with uh, CLL, Communicative Language Learning, with Curran. The teacher sat outside, stood outside mm. the circle and helped the students to say what they wanted to say. Right. Slightly less mad than that work was simply ways where you would go in and do communicative activities. Which you right. Okay, let's talk about um, uh, finding a job. All right, let's look at some uh, job adverts. And now let's do an interview and so on. Yeah. So the yeah. idea all the way was to get away from, firstly, to get away from cutting up the language, you know, mm, the, the synthetic yeah, right. syllabus, where you, where you treat the language as consisting of a, of a hundred or a thousand items and you cut it up, okay, the syllabus will be, first we'll do the present tense, then we'll do pronouns, then we'll do the inter, then we'll do the past yeah, tense, right, and so right, on, so on, right. so on. Um, The new way was holistic. It's a, you, you treat language holistically and you use it. You, you, you yeah. understand that landing a la learning a language is a, is a, is a matter of, doing it because of this enormous difference between declarative and yeah. procedural knowledge mm -hmm. that was mm -hmm. so that was a huge thing and that's what we were all banging on about and lots of different ways of doing it how much should you correct when should you correct mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. do drills of any place boom 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 all this stuff and then by the end of the 1980s um we were back with the arrival of headway and uh, right. one or two other course books we went right later became the goliaths yeah situational right. language teaching and right. the same kind of thing why because it was so wonderfully packaged it made sense it, you know it was easier for teachers it was easy for the institution and yeah. of course then the, the introduction of the uh, common european frame of reference that went from a1 to the you know, this whole idea of linear progression from you know nothing to you know and you cut right. it up into bits um all um, uh, making sense from a kind of uh, organizational, practical right. sense, right. but all actually uh, contradicting what we know about SLA. So there it was, you, you see, um, I was there at the start. I, it was weird that I- there at the end as well. <laughs> of, right. Uh, you know, when it got a chat, I was there during the challenge, but I saw mm -hmm. that challenge, the community language teaching challenge, snuffed out. 
And by the right. mid-1990s, a complete domination of course books uh, and the commodification of, as you mentioned, of, of ELT and of, well, of education in general, of course. Yeah, so, yeah. Yes, I, um, and that's what I bang on about today, exactly that, you know, that people say, oh, we're in the era of communicative language teaching, but we're not. This is not communicative language. Yeah. Lip service is paid to it. Right. But right. the reality of the matter is that it's coursebook dominated, and in coursebook dominated DLT, uh, students don't really get very much chance to, to practice, to, to, to learn by doing. Yeah. They learn by being told about it. Another element of that, the, the, the timeline that you've drawn there, um, obviously the, the focus on textbooks is, is um, very perhaps salient. Um, it seems like as well, another thread of, of the, the trend there was perhaps um, the focus on either explicit or implicit learning. Would you say that, that there was a rise and then fall as well in, in implicit learning? And Because and, it seems that maybe the textbooks, um, that, that course book driven approach does, again, even though there's a lot of lip service, I think the, the people kind of talk about implicit learning and even the, the the kind of the publishers and the schools that they come from you know the the, the cambridge um division of the industry which is which is a goliath in the in the efl world um i, I i've always found a tension there where they're at the forefront of efl training and development in in a lot of ways in in the industrial sense at least um and so they're sort of synonymous in the minds of a lot of teachers with the modern progressive approaches um but it does seem to then when you get into the classroom and when you buy the textbooks and when you follow the courses the explicit focus on structure and, and the study of grammar seems to still be quite present i find what do you think about that <laughs> um when we use these words, you know, explicit, they're absolutely, in my opinion, uh, central to uh, to this area, to distinguish between implicit, uh, look, some people make the distinction between explicit, implicit, and incidental. Uh, but in any case, right. the idea that what's behind all this is the central question of how do people learn a second language. Yeah. Um, and we know now um, that the essential way that people learn languages is implicit, it's unconscious, mm -hmm. the way children learn their first language. Yeah. Um, and that makes it so much diff so different from other subjects on the curriculum. So it's not the same as learning geography or biology. Right where really declarative knowledge is, 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 is the most important thing. If you know Paris is the capital of France, well, you know it, and, and right. there it is. But if you know that went is the past tense of the verb uh, to go, it doesn't mean that you'll, have, you'll be able to It doesn't help you in a, in a conversation. Uh, in a spontaneous yeah. moment. You, you, yeah. you don't, because it's not like that, because there is this huge difference that we mentioned before between uh, declarative and procedural knowledge. Now, declarative yeah. knowledge is explicit. You can you can articulate it, uh, but um, procedural knowledge is the knowledge you need to actually do things spontaneously yeah. 
uh, and so on. And that kind of knowledge doesn't come from being told about the language. Right. Right. Uh, you can tell students bits about the language you're blue in the face and they won't learn it unless it, it's somewhere you know, in, in, within their trajectory of what we now refer to as interlanguage development. Right. And interlanguage development is not uh, linear. It doesn't take the form of learning atomized items of the language in a, in a linear one-by-one sequential mm-hmm. cumulative way, which is assumed to do by, by textbooks and by those who use them. That yeah. is simply not the way the language is learned. Yeah. It, it, yeah. it isn't. Um, yeah. we, we, and that's another thing, I'll just say this for a moment, and in scientific math is very important. Um, we often don't know uh, what is the case in science generally, but it's much easier to know what isn't the case. That's yeah, what I actually, yeah. Sure yeah, I the had a very Earth similar is conversation. not bloody flat. That's right, yeah, right. It, right. And neither is language learning like that. That's just yeah. not, we know that that is not, okay, when, when yeah. to, to take the, uh, a good example, for example, of Della and, uh, in, in uh, the lexical uh, work, he says there are six principles, he calls them, of learning language. And he says they are first, for any item, he says, as if learning the language was a question of learning an yeah, atomized right. item. For every item, there is a process. First you see it, then you do it, then in fact, it, mm. that, we know that that is not the case. That is not the way languages are learned. So when you go to explicit and implicit, really at the start of this, of course, was Krashen, uh, and the tremendous, tremendous effect that Krashen had on all of us when he said he made this distinction between acquisition and learning. Right. Uh, yeah. Acquisition being uh, unconscious and, and, le- mm-hmm. and learning being conscious language. And he yeah. said yeah. Uh, conscious language learning has a very small part indeed. Really, right. all you need to learn a language is comprehensible input. Now, of mm-hmm. course, um, he went a bit too far, <laughs> you know, most people now would say, well, actually, there is a very important place for explicit uh, instruction right. and, e- and even... Just conscious uh, practice, right? Just awareness some, of what you're doing. Perhaps, some yeah. attention, but when yeah. you say, as you do, um, as you are, um, textbooks do seem to take a, a basically explicit uh, knowledge approach. What they mm. do, they contextualize it, and then they tell you about the language. And that's the right, problem. Exactly, yeah. A yeah. lot of classroom time, the majority of classroom time. Yeah. Um, and I just got a um, marvelous thing from a, a, a woman um, on Twitter. She's just done her PhD on uh, teacher talking time. And it turns okay. out from her study that the, the, the majority is around 70. Uh, and it goes up right, to 77% okay. of classroom time, <laughs> the more experienced teachers. So <laughs> however much they say, oh no, we're, you know, it is a fact that mostly in ELT today, teachers talk most of the time and they talk about the language. Yeah. They yeah. explain yeah. the language, they tell you what it is. Te- uh, yeah. Now, we know from second language language research that it would be much more efficacious if the time was spent where students were doing things and they were talking in the language. Yeah, absolutely. Language. They were doing communicative tasks that stretched them uh, was, and, and that the mm-hmm. teacher's role inside there would be scaffolding. Yeah. So yeah. I think, yes, that that's the, my main beef with uh, 
um, course books is precisely that. Yeah. They are not efficacious, they are not in line with, they contradict uh, mm -hmm. what we know about um, that second language learning. Yeah, good. Yeah, so as you place a lot of the blame on the on the course books there, and I want to explore that a little bit more because I think, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I tend to agree with with a lot of that. But um, I do wonder. Um, it also seems to me, just from my experience of working with other teachers as well, and and kind of being in in different institutions and uh, seeing this kind of how it plays out in the classroom. Um, definitely, the course book plays a large role there and teachers are kind of relying on a course book. But I do wonder as well, that explicit focus, um, whether it's something that the course books were kind of, you know, intent on maintaining or, or, or bringing around and maintaining, um, or I wonder as well how much this might have to do with the kind of obsession in mainstream education and, and, and in most education as well um, with testing and the fact that the the declarative knowledge of explicit grammar you know grammatical rules uh, is so much easier to test you can write an exam for the end of the for the end of the year and just get students kind of answering black and white questions about grammatical structures and tenses and um, you know patterns in language um, it's so much easier to test that I wonder how much of this is a, is, is a backwash effect on not just on the the teaching approach of an individual teacher, but actually the entire kind of curric curricular structure, and then a course books perhaps following that. Do we? Do you have any sense of, of which of those comes first, and how much the exams play into that? Yes, I, I think it's all part of the same uh, uh, model, isn't it? Um, uh, high state tests. Um, first of all one has to ask, you know, what are the tests for? But if we're, we'll park that for a moment. Let's say that um, what, what, um, one, one big area is um, uh, going from uh, one course to the next and making progress. Now, if the tests are supposed to see, test, measure <laughs> um, your progress, um, in language schools where you, they offer a series of courses depending on mm. where you uh, are in their opinion. Yeah, yeah. So you do a placement test and they say, we think you're uh, using the CFR, we think you're B2 or, uh -huh. or you're B1 or you're A2 and so on. And so you start off there, um, let's say you're B1, right, which is... I don't know, sort of intermediate, no lower, yeah, low, yeah, something yeah. like that. So you do a course book, uh, whatever the course book might be, uh, you know, English file or outcome, one of those that says this is this is appropriate for your level, um, mm -hmm. and then you work through the book where the the, the 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 syllabus consists of bits of the language cut up. Uh, yeah. You know, today we're going to do, I don't know, in relative clauses. Now we're going to do the second conditional. Now we're going to revise present perfect. And now we're going to do, uh, and so on and so on, and it goes. Um, well, obviously, the test at the end is going to be about that. Right, yeah. And the yeah. way they test it is exactly, a lot of it anyway, is quite, as you say, um, you know, uh, multiple choice, tick the box. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so on, which is very easy to to measure. Uh, you've got 65% yeah. right. right. Um, and we think that means you're probably ready for... Uh, and that's the other bloody joke about it, of course. Uh, you know, 
even in his hardy, especially later on, when it came to the uh, test at the end of the course, the, the question is, are you ready for our next course? Yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> now yeah, guess yeah. how we're biased there. Yeah, yeah. Biased course, to yeah. say, yes, you are. Yeah, yeah. Give us yeah. your money. Exactly you know? right, yeah. So, oh, you got 86 in the test. And so yeah, on. and you needed 85 so to, to pass. Congratulations. Uh, uh, <laughs> um, so, yes, I think you're absolutely right. The tests, um, I, I, I'm not sure, uh, I don't think the, the tail is wagging a doll. I don't think okay. the tests, uh, uh, of course it does, the washback uh, in now, in high test, in, in, for example, yeah, China yeah. or Japan or South Korea, there the, uh, the washback effect on teaching of the, of the um, free university courses is it's enormous no, you know, that, yeah, that yeah. really does i mean that's a, that's an industry in itself preparing people to take that test yeah so, right, right. But i think in, in in mostly um testing simply reflects the kind of syllabus you know right uh, and if you're doing that if during the course you're ticking boxes and multiple choice yeah, and, and yeah, so on yeah, if you're yeah. learning grammar and vocabulary in the way that they do, it's hardly surprising that they'd have a test yeah. like that at the end. Yeah. Now what you really need, of course, is a, is a, is a criterion referenced um, yeah. test that says, okay, can you do, yeah, what do you like, like, like yeah. a driving test? Can yeah. you drive yeah. the bloody car? If yeah. you can, yeah, exactly right. yeah. you get your test. If you can't, yeah. you fail. Yeah. That's what it should be. And, yeah. and if, as in most, a lot of cases, the, the student's goal is community competence, well then the obvious thing to do is to get them to do some communicative tasks. Right, right, yeah, exactly. You know, to, to do things, to do a presentation, or to take part in a role play, or to, you know, do stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah. And that's sadly lacking yeah, from yeah. most um, I mean, tests. I suppose, I suppose it can't be overlooked as well um, that the major publishing houses, um, which are all, almost identical one to the other anyway. Um, many of them are also uh, heavily involved in the uh, the testing industry as well. So I suppose it can't be overlooked. The, 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 just the, the direct obvious link there actually between who's publishing the, the, the books and who's writing the tests. Um, I suppose yes. that's something that, that can't be overlooked. Yes. Well, Cambridge, um, is the yeah, Cambridge being the obvious one, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yes. yeah. Uh, Pearson being another as well. Um, yes. So I suppose that that's, there's an obvious connection there. Um, and but that's you know you, you talk about the um, you know the the communicative uh, tasks that we might want our students to perform as a form of assessment. Certainly, the way that I um, structure my teaching and assessing, both at the school level where I'm teaching English to, to students of English, and at the, the training level where I'm training teachers, you know, the goal is always to have them doing things by the end of the, the learning experience. Yeah. Um, it seems to me there's a disconnect there. You've mentioned the CEFR a couple of times. There's so many of these publishers, and Cambridge, again, being perhaps one of the, the primary examples for this, um, align themselves, or at least purportedly align themselves with the CEFR. Now, what I've always liked about the CEFR is that it is, um, task oriented right it does describe a number of things that a person is supposed to be able to do in a professional and social environment um and i've always been quite fond of it and i've always liked the idea of linking teaching towards that in one way or another um it does seem to me that there's a bit of a lie involved 
with the relationship that so many of these textbooks claim to have because they're not <laughs> they're not quite orchestra uh, oriented towards that practical use of language and so when you buy a textbook that says it's a b2 textbook um, and so it's for, for students who are at b2 on the cefr but then you flick through that textbook and you see that it's you know uh, a sequence of discrete grammar points um, I, I don't know. I mean, is that just a false claim? It seems to me that you know, I like I like the inclusion, the reference to the framework, but I don't think it's actually meaningful. Uh, and I also suspect you might not quite agree with me on the on the value of the CFLA in the first place. So we might be across uh, purposes on the premise. I wonder. Well, um, I'm afraid I don't agree with you about the CFR. Um, uh, my what I would recommend you read here would be Glenn Fulter. Glenn Volter um, works actually at the same, uh, he's the boss of the Applied Linguistics Department at Leicester okay. University. He's a tremendous, tremendous academic. Um, and his field is assessment testing. Um, well, he refers to the CFR as a Frankenstein uh, scale. Um, and he has a very good article uh, called The Reification of uh, Assessment. And that's the problem with the CFR, that it's, it's, it's reified, mm -hmm. by which uh, we mean that it takes abstract, um, artificial constructs and turns them into um, what look like real things. Mm -hmm. okay. you know, uh, but they don't exist. You see, the CFR is made up of can-do statements which were made entirely by teachers. There's no empirical right. support for mm -hmm. them whatsoever. They're, and what's more, so many of them are completely sort of fuzzy and, and, and difficult to pin down, can uh, make its way successfully through uh, a course and, and um, far, you know, what does that actually mean? Yeah. It's very fuzzy. If you look at the difference, for example, between the can-do statements on, I don't know, you know, B, B2 and uh, how to go B2, B3 and see what, around that area particularly, mm -hmm. uh, it, it's really hard to know, you know. Uh, and right. In the end, what it comes down to is the teacher's subjective judgment um, yeah. on the performance of that. Now, I agree with you to the extent that it says something like, um, can read uh, um, an article in a quality newspaper, get right. the main points, yeah, and, yeah. and uh, explain to somebody else. Well, you're quite right. That's a sort of task. And say, well, go on, then do it. Let's see if you can yeah, do it. right. Which is what's always appealed to me about it. Yes, and I think you're right there. The problem is, of course, that it it, it, it is not as measurable as they say, and it doesn't mm. exist. You say, and that's yeah. again. What the real problem with it is, is the assumption of this linear progress from right. A1 to C2. It just doesn't work like that, nor um, can you do what they try to do, which is um, uh, chop up the bit. Can, oh, you can't do this until, I mean, yeah. it covers itself because it yeah. says, can do it in an elementary way, and, and then you get up and it right. can do it bloody well. That's, that's, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's absolutely right. But there are some things rather like in the course books, like you don't go near the third conditional until you're at intermediate right. 
<laughs> right. Which I mean, my my take on that would be, um, and obviously a lot of what you've just said makes sense. But my take on that point about the course books would be that at that point they have departed anyway from the practical side of the language use. Once you're putting, I. I wonder what you you feel about the you know you you brought the empirical factor in and I'm not you know I'm not particularly aware of what the what research may or may not have been done on this particular point but it seems to me that uh, looking at a linear progression which we you know we might we might not be a fan of the linear progression anyway but looking at a linear progression of practical proficiencies you know the ability to 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 fill in a form as compared with the ability to write a, a, a professional report in the office. Uh, obviously there's, you know, there's obviously a linear relationship somewhere between those two. Um, that linear progression seems to me to have no obvious relationship to the linear progression between, um, you know, the, the conditionals versus the, the, I don't know, active and passive and the tenses below that. The, there, there are two linear formats there. And I have more faith in the practical one than the grammatical one. Um, it seems to me that they don't necessarily line up in a in a way that the 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 textbook authors perhaps claim that they do, or if they don't claim it, they seem at least implicitly to believe that they do. Um, I mean, do you see some valid linearity there, at least on that practical side, where you can say, look, a person who can do this is obviously more advanced in the language than a person who can do much less than that. You know, a person who can, uh, as I say, fill in a form is very different from sitting and reading the, the, the Financial Times. Um, what's the, that seems obvious, but there must be, you must have an empirical take on that as well. So what, what do you think about it to that extent? Yes, um, first I agree um, that the idea of a grammar-based syllabus is particularly ridiculous in mm. that we know that that's not the way people learn uh, the language. They don't go from the, from the easy structures to the right. difficult structures right. like that. It's just, that's not Which I very much, by the way, I very much believe was the case, you know, once upon a time. I was yeah. very kind of, very, yes. uh, uh, very uh, you know, indoctrinated. It does have a lot of common, common sense. Sort yeah, of, it makes sense, uh, right. Yeah. Appeal, yeah. But it, it's just not, you know, that's just not how it's done. It's done, yeah. uh, you know, interlanguage development is just not linear. It, 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 it has um, ups and downs. People go back, you know, they get worse. It's U-shaped. There are, right, yeah, yeah. There, are, there are all sorts of, you know, and, and, and incidentally, an enormous amount of uh, variation between different mm -hmm. people's ways of, sure, of, sure. Of, of doing that trajectory. So it's much better to see the language holistically and not cut it up in a grammatical way. Now, yeah. as far as uh, uh, tasks go, well, of course, I completely agree that one, well, there one does have to go from simple to complex. You start right. out, as you quite rightly say, let's see if they can fill in a little form, a uh, little form, I'm not condescending. I mean, fill in, <laughs> no, fill in no, a, but absolutely right, a yeah. simple form, but yeah. name, address, and so on yeah. and so on. That's an absolutely appropriate thing to ask a beginner to do. Mm -hmm. And it's not appropriate to ask him to write a 3,000 right. word essay right. <laughs> on the causes of, you know, <laughs> You're quite right. So I think it does. Uh, see, and this is what uh, what one does in a task-based learning course: is yeah. you, you go precisely 
from the simple to the complex. Mm -hmm. um, in Long's TBLT approach, that precisely the intricacy of the, of the syllabus is to work out precisely how you go from the simple to the complex, not by yeah. using the present tense in right, the simple one yeah, exactly right, and the conditional yeah. <laughs> in the typical yeah, yeah. one, yeah, but simply right. by um, making things more, you know, yes, more, more um, wider range of vocabulary, more fluency, ability to speak for longer, uh, to use different uh, strategies of, of, you know, and all that. Um, within the course and as you go along from, you know, some a very advanced course, let's say we're doing a course, I don't know, for, for doctor, for, for um, orthopedic surgeons. So you start off and, and, and then English isn't terribly good. So you have them asking very simple questions of the yeah. patients. Yeah, yeah. Does it hurt? Where does it, you know, yeah, and stuff yeah, like yeah. that. Right, exactly right. Whereas at the end, they can be talking uh, to, a, to a colleague uh, on a video conference, giving very detailed information and, and, and um, uh, talking about the different um, interpretations if they have them. You know, right, yeah, yeah. So that's what you do. But you treat the language holistically and, 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 and of course, in its domain. So these people will not be talking about, um, you know, whether the bed was comfortable or oh, maybe they had a tiny bit, of, you know, but the, what I'm saying is that inside the domain, inside where um, these people are interested, then the kind of progression that you're talking of, that, you know, from simple to complex makes uh, complete sense. I think that's yeah. absolutely fine. Right. And I think you're right that there is a bit of a mismatch in, in course books that claim yeah, you know, not that they do really seriously. I mean, yeah, I think that's. I think that's it. I think, that's, I think I, there's some lip service being paid. Well, somebody said. Um, I think it was in a conversation I had. Anyway, said you know the good thing to do with course backs is, is, is start at the back. Right. You know, start at so you know the end where you're of going. the unit. Start <laughs> right, at the yeah. end of the unit where there's the activity. <laughs> right, do that yeah, first. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Then some of the daft stuff they do it yeah. even make you know help. Yeah, I mean similarly what I end up doing with a lot of teachers, you know, I mean I certainly uh I'm not I, I'm not suggesting that we need to burn all the books. Um and and also uh, that just just because of the way I feel and also because you know teachers in many parts of the world, they do rely on the books. Uh, perhaps you know whether it's for better or worse. They, it, it it seems to be a bit worse. of a fact. I think. Yeah, I would I would say. Uh, but you know, it is it is it is one. Of, it's it's kind of an, a fairly yeah. immutable fact, at least for now. Um, you, you're not going to you can't just scrap them all uh, because people will be left flailing. And so what I tend to do when I'm working with teachers um, is you know say well okay well let's take a look at the book identify what the book thinks we should be teaching now which is likely to be a grammar point um and then put the book down and think well where do we see that grammar being used and one of the things you something that you alluded to moments ago as well um i find that not very much time seems to be spent thinking about what communication actually looks like um when you you know you get the tenses taught and you might get the Recently, I was working with a teacher who, because he, he taught a lesson on the future tense, um, setting aside the linguistic <laughs> debate there for a moment, uh, and, and kind of in the same lesson, had taught all of the possible 
formulations of the future tense, you know, the simple and the going to and the will and all of those. Um, so I said, you know, if you think about any given conversation, they don't look like they do in the textbooks where you have person A, person B, person A, person B going through a series of future tense sentences, you know, um, the likelihood is in a real conversation, you're mixing up all manner of tenses, even though you're talking about the future in terms of time discussion, the linguistic, the, the, the grammatical resources that you'll be using are not all going to be future. You know, you might talk about the reason why you've got the particular plan for tomorrow is because yesterday's plan got canceled and today you're a bit too busy. And so tomorrow you're going to do that. And so we don't speak in tenses at all. Um, I, I feel that just remarkably little conscience is given to um, what language actually looks like in a conversation or in, in whether it's spoken or written communication. Um, uh, again, I mean, do you have any insight into why that might be so prevalent? Is it just because it's easier to write a textbook that way or, or, or is it just something that, that has been overlooked or what? Well, no, I, I think um, it's, it, it kind of comes with the, <laughs> the, the, the theory. Um, if you really think that what you do, the best way to, to teach uh, English, let's say, as a, as a second language, is to first present uh, something, to explain something, right. to establish a sort of declarative knowledge, uh, and then to practice it, well, it makes perfect sense if you, let's say, the, the famous example of the present perfect, if you go in there and you contextualize something, and then you start uh, talking in the present perfect. I yeah. have uh, known John uh, right. for three years. I've worked there. Um, we've done this, it's, and so on and so on. Then it's hardly surprising, even when you come to the practice stage, that what you want to do is practice the present perfect. Yeah, uh, so yeah. you, 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 you get people in small groups and, and then they ask you, how long have you done this? And have you ever yeah, yeah, yeah. seen a, a green whale? And all this stuff. Um, now, exactly as you say, in real conversation, people don't talk like that. Yeah, so right. give them any rope whatsoever, they won't practice. Right, right. Yeah, They'll yeah. say, yeah, have you ever been to Paris? Yeah. No, but this last weekend I went to uh, right, right, oh God, right. I had a really good time. Yeah, what did you do? Get back to the <laughs> tenses. Yeah, exactly right. It's, a, it's yeah. a hopeless thing. I mean, I remember doing this myself and, 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 and learning very fast, as to so right. many you, you know, it's ridiculous. They won't do it. Mm -hmm. um, you try and separate will from going to, or, you know, yeah. to, you know I'm, ha I'm having a party next week to, wait a minute, um, you know, and so on. Yeah, it's, yeah, of course, yeah. Will, 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 will Sarah be at the party? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's it. You know, but I think, <laughs> and off they've gone, and, and they're not doing will anymore. And they're yeah, doing, wait a minute, wait a minute. So, yes, I, I, I completely agree. It's, it's ridiculous, but it, it's, it's hardly surprising, is it? if that's the way the course book is uh, organized, that the teacher should make these forlorn attempts to get them all, as they do, laughingly enough in, in the dialogues and so on, you know. Exactly see, right, yeah, the examples it, are all there, it's yeah. Not, 
they, they, they used to be hilarious, you know, streamlined. You know, they don't do anything. The whole text is yeah. past tense or it's can yeah. or it's... Or, you know, or if it's, even if it's less structure-based, uh, you get, you know, a short paragraph four or five lines and there's 10 adjectives in there because you're teaching adjectives yeah. and no one you know if you if you wrote like that people wouldn't want to read it you know if you it's just completely yeah. peppered yeah. with with uh, forced language um yeah. for, for for the sake of frequency so i mean I, I can see why it's just easier to write a book that way right and, and and i think as you say i mean perhaps perhaps it is just purely as well that there's a belief that that's the case but what i mean again there's there's a lot of dissonance here because as well, one of the main kind of uh, theories that people will refer to, or, or I don't know, uh, one of the main approaches that people will refer to, and again, these, these publishing houses and, the, and their, their spokespeople, um, is, for example, the, the lexical approach is um, the gold standard that people refer to as what language teaching is kind of supposed to be about. And yet the same people will do everything that we've just talked about. I don't, I don't see how you square the circle sometimes about what they're saying and what they're claiming and what they're putting in the titles and the blurbs of the textbooks sometimes. And I mean, is there just a, is it just a cynical case of marketing to talk about the books one way, even though they're not, uh, no, and even, yeah, you, yeah, go ahead. I think they're quite genuine. I mean, I think uh, um, these people like Bella and so on, that they really believe what they're talking, you know. Um, I just think it's completely mis... I mean, first, they don't, don't know what they're talking about in terms of second language acquisition theory. But um, really, it, it, um, it stems from the, partly anyway, from the work done when we got big computers um, and mm. big corporate. As mm. soon as this started, the, the Cobill program, for example, Sinclair, um, Hoey was involved too, the Birmingham lot, um, Michael McCarthy. The, when, once uh, you start examining the language um, with the help of computers that could um, process uh, huge uh, corpora, you remember in the, in the 16th or 15th century, there were monks, uh, yeah, monks yeah, used to go yeah. through the Bible and look for occurrences of God, for example, yeah, and they yeah, tolerate right. them. And it would take them 70 years. Well, now a computer will do that for you in a nanosecond. 70 seconds, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, let's not say. 70, uh, yeah. seventh. Yeah, um, absolutely, yeah. So uh, now you've got this tremendous uh, information about English, and it shows, quite as the lexical people say, that um, the place of formulaic uh, language and that, uh, chunks is, is, is huge. It, it is one of the most important components of, of the English, and no doubt about it, absolutely none. Tremendously important. And, and so the, 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 even the, sort of the grammar rules start getting, you know, you, uh, teachers used to say um, that uh, any is the negative form of... Right, you know, yeah, right. The derogative form of some. Well, if you, do, if you look at a big corpus, you'll find that the most frequent use of any is actually in the affirmative. Yeah, the right, yeah. It doesn't matter which, you know, I want any book that... Uh, yeah, right, right, right. So, yeah. tremendously important, and the lexical approach um, 
is another thing. Um, there were some very good books, Nattinger uh, and uh, De Carico, for example, Pauli and Sider, okay. uh, two excellent uh, books. Um, then there was the famous one that uh, so struck uh, Della, the Michael West one on, on the lexical approach, uh, and then his stuff, and now right. other people, Sullivan. And the problem with it is, we, we absolutely accept the importance of, of, of prefabricated uh, language and of language chunks and, and yeah. this kind of gray area. Of some, some of it's utterly fixed. You can't do anything with it, you know, like yeah, uh, right, right. pitching time, stage nine. There it is. It's un yeah. But something like the more you, the less you and, and all that. Yeah, right, right. Of course. Yeah. Those are very interesting and, uh, and so on. So, so um, we must... Uh, pay attention to these, they're extremely important. Um, but the problem is, first, they're bloody difficult to learn. All the research shows that collocations is one of the most, the, 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 the last things that even, even students with thousands of hours, of, 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 or students, people who have had thousands of hours of exposure to, to English as an L2, don't get it. Right. Um, very, and the other thing, of course, is the sheer number of them. Um, yeah, someone course, like, yeah. um, you know, e experts in the area would have to say something like 10,000 word families are needed to, to right. have a good fluency. And we're, if that's the case for, you know, um, words and so on, phrases, what is it for collocations? Yeah, it, it, yeah. It literally explodes into hundreds of facts. Now, yeah. how do you manage? You can't. You see, what Della does is he tries to stuff, you know, fifty running, right. you know, um, lexical chunks into a, into a, one lesson. Right. How, okay. You know, what it, it is impossible to teach enough lexical. You'd have to teach fifty. For, I forget. Somebody calculated it two years. Right. Okay. It, it, that's the problem with it. It's very important, but first, if you try and teach it explicitly, yeah. as uh, Della says, you're doomed to, to failure because it's, it's impossible to get near, you know, I mean, right. you get 300. Right, you know, sure, that? yeah. So, so that's so, the first problem. And the second okay. problem is it's teachability. Yeah. You can tell people, you can tell them again and again that, that all the research, and there is a lot of good research, not that Della's ever mentioned any of it, but there is good research on um, the acquisition of uh, lexical terms uh, and, and, and the rest of it. And it shows that it's a bloody, it's a real problem. It, it, we should recognize, Crashing's uh, solution to it is extensive reading. Right. Right, right. Idea. And, and, yeah. and other people's is, is, is to make sure there's rich input and that you do go back to it. But the problem is how to situate that inside the wider context of a, of a decent uh, language learning program and yeah. not to obsess with it as, as right. Della done. Sure. This complete messianic, you know, cult like. Uh, domination of, of, of the bloody lexical chunk to the, to the exclusion of everything else. Incidentally, right, okay. he talks about bottom-up grammar. Have you ever heard him talk about bottom-up grammar? I don't think so. So, so we, Hugh's actually been on this, uh, I've, I've spoken with Hugh on this, oh. uh, this series before. Um, now, one thing I'll say, uh, and, and I think you'll 
probably tell just from the, t the, the tenor of this conversation, you know, I'm not as, um, I'm not even close to beginning to be uh, as embedded in the, uh, you know, the, the statistical side of some of the research that you've just, you, you've done yourself and you've read, of course I haven't. Mm -hmm. um, what I found speaking with Hugh was that um, we agreed on quite a lot. And, and the, the, the main place that we didn't agree necessarily was the, the, the textbook focus. Of course, he's a, he's a writer of textbooks. And so he would think that, wouldn't he? Um, and, and uh, you know, so obviously there was, there was some disagreement there or some difference of perspective there. But what I found, and maybe, you know, I don't know where it is that the, the uh, disagreement lies there, because what I found was, um, I, I mean, in a lot of ways, everything that you've just said, you know, is he, he's kind of lexically oriented and uh, it practically focused on, on practical language, um, how it's used rather than, you know, analyzing it. I mean, these are all things that I would agree with and that I think you would as well. So is it that there's, there's an extreme, does, does, does he, and of course, you know, many others perhaps, uh, is it just that they take too extreme a stance on it? Is it that they're, I mean, if they're doing the right thing, but they can't reference the studies that you can reference, no, I wouldn't no, necessarily no, no. say that that's a problem. So where does the, where does the disagreement lie? The problem first, um, the problem is that Stella uh, doesn't know anything about second language acquisition. Um, he completely models up uh, the work of Hoey and, and the work of, of um, uh, um, other people in that area. Um, mainly, what he doesn't appreciate is simply interlanguage development. He basically, right, okay, sure. okay. first, first he, 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 I mean, I told you that this absurd thing in his book of how people, principles of language learning, principles of language right, learning, right. there's six. For any item of language, right, right. The learners do the same. And it so is, if I, I mean, so that's the first thing, right, lack okay. of understanding of SLA research. The second is complete confusion about priming uh, and okay. its place in um, language acquisition. And the third, is the tremendous emphasis he puts on explicit teaching. Right. Bella cannot wait to tell somebody another lexical chant. He just, <laughs> okay, I see. they tip out of him like water over Niagara. It's just extraordinary. He's so, I, I, you know, and he says, the biggest problem for language teachers is to be able to have these lexical chunks on the tip of their right, tongue like he does. You know, we can't, right. he's just, you know, an extraordinary fountain of, of, right. of these things. What I'm saying is that is no way to go about an English, a, a course of English as a second language. Now, part, of, fact, why you, part yeah. of why you say that, if, if just referring to, to the, your, your previous um, references mm -hmm. here seems to be, and uh, certainly I have to agree with you, um, part of that is just because it's so impossible, uh, just yes. because of the sheer vastness of the, of the yes. library that you'd be referring to. Um, the, also, the approach that I take there is um, kind of laying foundations. So I, again, I'm speaking for myself now, not for Hugh and not for others, because I don't, I'm mm -hmm. not familiar enough with their work either. Um, but I mean, my approach to that has always been to kind of introduce 
the chunks and the phrases and the things as they're used. Um, but I mean, I perhaps would agree with you. I don't spend as much time perhaps giving a, a dozen synonymous chunks that can be used. I mean, is that is that where it's going awry for you? Because it does seem to me, uh, you know, my approach would be possibly quite similar. I, I would want to, you know, have my students exposed to uh, language as it's used. And my belief is that I think as yours is that the language that is used is is chunked, right? It's 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 uh, it's functional in that in that regard. So is it just the the attempt to do too much that you? Yes. Yeah. Well, firstly, although we all agree now the importance of um, of lexical chunks, right? Um, there, there is still um, a grammar there um, whose rules are extremely productive in the sense of course, that yeah. <clears throat> they do help you, um, yeah. you know, to, to invent new language. Yeah. Um, and one of the things about uh, this unfortunate lexical exaggeration yeah. is it, it, it gets a bit like a phrase book uh, you know, yes. 50 years ago. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, it, you know, grammar helps you to, to invent new sentences and, yeah. and students yeah. do invent new sentences. Right, yeah, exactly right, yeah. Um, yeah. So, we, first, that's the thing, to, to not exaggerate too much the importance yeah. Yeah. of uh, lexical chunks. And secondly, not to overdo the explicit teaching. Right. For all yeah, his right. protestations and for all that, what really comes across, I, I have never ever seen any a teacher trainer or any book on how to learn, how to teach language that insists so much on the teacher teaching and the teacher right, teaching, okay. telling okay. students about. I see. Um, so, of course, Della will say that he's absolutely in favour of and gives a lot of attention to uh, tasks and, and, and for the students to be producing the language. Um, his uh, obsession with, with the explicit teaching of lexical right, terms okay. um, contradicts any real principled uh, commitment to communicative language teaching, communicative language tasks. Uh, so that seems to be another thing then that is remarkably widespread um, is the exaggeration of or the carrying to, to the extreme of a given approach, usually from, from one author or another, you know, one theorist or another from usually from around somewhere between the 70s and the 90s, right? Um, where what I've tried to do, what I think I do a, a decent job of, is I try to put together as many different ideas as I can. Now, again, I'm lacking on some of the empirical backing that you'll have. Um, and so, you know, I'm trialing this out in the classrooms and, uh, you know, but for me, it's an eclectic pro approach that's important. One of the things that I found, and I wonder again, going back to, to your earlier years in teaching, uh, how much you saw this then as well. Um, I mean, you mentioned earlier, um, you know, the silent way, and then we have things like Suggestopedia, um, and, and even the lexical approach, which is, you know, one of the, perhaps one of the pillars of my approach to teaching in, in one form or another. But it is again, something that I've seen um, taken to an extreme. And I, I, I interviewed for a job, um, well, maybe six or seven years ago now in a language school. Um, and they were, 
very uh, stringent on their use of the lexical approach, which actually was what appealed to me in the first place is why I wanted to apply for the job. And then in the, uh, in the interview, I went through a few stages of interviews. They called me back for, you know, I interviewed with the center manager and then the regional manager. And then it turned out that the, uh, the Asia director or whatever, you know, the director was, was in the country at the time and he wanted to give me my final interview. Great went along and uh, basically in the course of that interview um, or towards the end of that interview he asked me you know uh, given that the focus had been on a lexical approach to teaching he said well what if a student asked you um, you know in a lesson uh, what is the the present perfect tense and I said well okay I can kind of see where where this is going so I tried to give as lexical a pos as possible an answer to that question I said well you know I'd probably give him some examples of, of the present perfect in a you know I'd probably sh show him what what things we might say and when we might say them something like that and he said um, but what if he asked you you know what if he asked you to uh, about the structure and I said well in that case I'd tell him the structure you know I'd say uh, you know I'd help him break it down if that's what he was asking if, if we got to that point and he was interested in that um, and I didn't get the job and I can only assume it's because I didn't, I wasn't lexical enough. And I thought, well, it's just so extreme. Um, and, and it seems that th th this is the industry for extremes. That's something I've noticed. If I've noticed anything over a decade, what I've noticed is this is the industry for extremes. And that, you know, any, any theory that comes out, you'll find a school of thought that takes it to the farthest extreme. Um, as I said, the silent way seems to be the perfect example of that. Okay, the teacher should talk less, the student should talk more. So let's have the teacher saying nothing at all. Um, you know, I, and that, uh, that seems to be, I mean, how is that happening? Is it just the belief that, you know, if this is good, then this cubed must be so much better or is it a lack of understanding of the theory? You know, oh, well, I've not really read the book, something about Lexis, so let's just do Lexis. Or is there something else going on? What, what, did you have any insight on that? Yeah, I think, um, I think it all comes, it, it's interesting, isn't it, that there's extremes. And um, we all uh, say um, that eclecticism is, is the best. You know, take be a magpie, take bits from here and there. You right. Know? If you don't, oh, that looks like a nice uh, um, exercise. Well, do it, you know, and, yeah. um, and so on. Be flexible. Um, I think really the problem is that um, we, I believe that we should start from uh, what we know about second language learning, which isn't everything. Uh, and right. we certainly, as a result of SLL, uh, SLA work, don't have any uh, magic, perfect methods. So right. the, 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 the distance between what we know about how people learn a language and what we know about the best way to teach there's a huge gap yeah yeah uh, so and and it's and it's so much an art more than a, a science you know, yeah right uh, individual teachers and the way they go about their job you know you, you could see a terrific teacher using <laughs> A method that you might right. really cringe at, right, right. more you effective think it's than effect, someone yeah. doing what you think is the right sure. way, and so on sure. and so on. But I think, um, really, if you start from a base of um, what we know about language learning, second language learning, um, and uh, yes, the empirical evidence is extremely important. I personally think that you know you keep saying. It's an empirical thing. It is important. It is it's sure. one of the two bases of a scientific approach. So we really do need to try and 
uh, yeah. get some hard quantitative data. Um, and that's slippery. And, but anyway, um, we've got enough, we've got enough robust uh, findings now, even among those who disagree uh, in principle a theory of second language acquisition. So for example, if you take <coughs> those who have a cognitive um, interactionist approach, <coughs> excuse me, and then you take the new ones, the usage-based um, people who come up, who um, it's actually now a lot of common ground. So Nick Ellis, who's probably the best of the usage-based um, uh, crowd, the theor theoreticians who are, and are very, very good on um, uh, quantitative-based surveys and studies. He now shares a lot of ground with Mike Long, who okay. uh, is, is, is far more, as you know, in a sort of cognitive uh, psycholinguistic camp, <clears throat> um, what they agree on, and here we go again, is that language learning is basically implicit. Right. And that that's the way that you should go, that, that's what you should start from. Yeah. Now, whether you arrive at some mad sort of extreme, uh, you know, you extrapolate, if language learning is essentially implicit, then, nobody then we should, should never ever, do any. <laughs> yeah, then, then, then nobody should ever mention grammar, yeah. no teacher should ever present yeah. any, and so on and right, so on. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. That's the problem. If it leads to that, like uh, the sort of Masonic, it really is, if you read uh, Della, and I don't, I really do not want to paint any bad feeling at all. I respect uh, that a lot of people, um, go for Della's stuff, he's very popular, uh, and, and, and so on, so I'm not, but there is about it something of the, mis uh, the epiphany. If you, if you read him uh, in his early stuff, I forget where, not in the, the teaching lexically, but anyway, somewhere he says that reading uh, Michael uh, Lewis's book, yeah was like an epiphany, you know, the, the scales fell, he suddenly, I mean, it really had a huge impact. Right, I see, he, he, yeah. he keeps saying that, you know, this to me was like, I, I've been teaching all this grammar-based stuff and I wasn't comfortable right. with it, and boom, there it was. Ah! Um, well, that, that happens, but the danger is, as you said, that you, you get you too to extreme about moment, it, right? you get yeah, too yeah. evangelistic, um, and, you, and perhaps you're not able to properly um, assess the counter arguments and its limitations. Mm -hmm. And all yeah. methods, doesn't matter what the hell they are, do have limitations, which is why yeah. I completely agree with it. You know, uh, a, a sort of mongrel, a mongrel's much yeah, better than a right. yeah, yeah. isn't it? You know, yeah, the, yeah, uh, right. Christ, we've got two bloody Mastin thoroughbred, and, and we've never had so much trouble. Yeah, we, we, we rescued them, we didn't, didn't buy oh, them. Okay. But uh, we've always had lots of dot. And anyway, right. my point no, is. Absolutely, I mean, it's a, it's a perfect that, uh, analogy, I agree. We ought to be eclectic, you know. Yeah. Uh, now, what I'm pushing is task based language teaching, as you know, right. a particular, a, a strong version of it. But even right. there, what we absolutely recognize is the need to be very flexible, 
uh, as you say, we'll be dealing with people who, who have to use course books. And just as you say, yeah, sure. the thing to do is to talk to them about how can you ameliorate, how can you twist yeah. the how yeah. can you go a bit more in one direction, not in another? And that's yeah. the sort yeah. of thing I think yeah. we agree, you and I, that that's what we ought to be doing. We oh, be doing absolutely, more, yeah, 100%. Um, not, you know, this is right, you know, any pure, there's no, there's no pure... No. I mean, that's it. I mean, you, you obviously your focus is on the, the task based learning. And that's what I think you that's what you're teaching now, right? You're, when you're lecturing yes. on that, right? Um, yeah. And well, I'm not so, lecturing. I'm doing a, although I am actually in another place, but um, I'm doing a course with Neil uh, McKellen at the moment. Okay. Sorry, Neil McMillan at SLB. Okay. He and I are doing a course for a teacher training course, online teacher training I course. See on task-based language teaching, which is based on uh, Long's approach. Right, right. So even there, um, it just seems to me, where evidently others disagree, uh, it seems to me that when you talk about task-based learning as an approach, uh, which I do when I'm training teachers as well, it's one of, again, one of the, I might call it a pillar, you know, one of the pillars, as is the lexical approach, as are several other things. It seems to me that, there doesn't even have to be a conflict between one and the other, right? So it seems to me that when, if you're talking about the, lexi uh, the lexical approach, and then you're talking about the task-based learning, you're not, I don't even think you're talking about two things that are even in conflict. It seems to me that, you know, you can embed the lexical approach as the, your language approach into task-based learning as your teaching approach, and then various other things along the way, um, it seems to me that there doesn't even have to be any conflict between some of these ideas. And that's how, that's why for me, this eclectic approach has not just been something that I, you know, aspire to, but it just seems so, so comfortable and natural to me because you can take from different things and put them together quite comfortably. It's not a difficult thing to do, I think. Well, I, um, certainly what we um, know about the importance of lexical chunks, prefabricated language and so on. Yes, I, I, I think that there the question is, you know, it's really difficult to know how, how do we cope with this, you know, given that there are so many of them, given that they are um, difficult to learn, they're, you know, they're one of the most difficult things for um, many uh, people to get hold of as a, in English as a second language. So that's difficult, um, huge, because there are so many yeah. of them. Yeah. But yeah. certainly, um, you know, lots of different, I mean, it's still an ongoing thing. How the hell do you deal with this? Yeah. And I, I yeah. think the only thing we could agree, well, one thing we can agree on is um, they shouldn't be the overriding. You know, right, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Go too far with yeah. Now the yeah. other thing is um, it, what task-based learning does is adopts um, a, what we call an analytic rather than synthetic syllabus, and mm -hmm. I think that is another um, you know unnegotiable bit. I yeah. don't think, however eclectic you want to be, if you use a synthetic syllabus, you're kind of uh, doomed right. from the start. Right. So. Um, I think you should get away from chopping up the language into thousands of bits, yep. items and, yep. And, yep. And, and thinking how do we uh, present and practice them. That seems to me a, a, a dead end. Um, yeah. So if, one, if we say 
Um, what we know about language deep learning is that they have their own uh, inbuilt um, interlanguage development uh, mm -hmm. trajectory. Mm -hmm. We have to respect this, this kind of um, thing. That it is mainly a question of them working things out for themselves. It is, what is really yep. important is that they get rich input and that we scaffold tasks and so on. You know, some, some, you know, maybe we could even sort of say, here, here are six kind of things. Not, you know, yeah, right, yeah. Uh, make sure that the teacher, the student gets a lot of time to actually do yep. things with the language, not be yep. told about, yep. blah, 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 blah. Once you cover those, it does seem to me that task-based language learning um, really recommends itself. But as you say, at the moment, um, if you just suddenly said, right, no more textbooks, uh, all you know, fire tonight and tomorrow yeah, to, yeah, to yeah. dawn. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you'd be scrambling. Yeah. Terrible, terrible. I mean, I, I think we, we should give them. Uh, let's say um, a month. <laughs> and then <laughs> very generous. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> but I, I mean, I think in the end it should be, you know, because yeah. I think there's a much better, more efficacious uh, alternative. Yeah. Where, and, and, and the trouble is to get out of it because it's such a huge business. Yeah. And we're so yeah. locked into this commercial, you know, thing that it's bloody difficult to think of, uh, of a, an alternative. And if you did say you're going to do an alternative, then there would be an initial investment needed, an initial commitment, yeah. and you would have to somehow, how do, how do you deal with them? You know, well, yeah, I mean, I wonder what you see as pathways towards that, because it is an ideology that I would agree with. And it's one that, in fact, when I'm working with teachers, essentially, it's a similar kind of uh, horizon that I'm working towards, actually. Um, uh, what we, you know, what I aim to do with many of the teachers I work with, depending on the scale of time I have with them, then reducing reliance on the textbook is one of the things that we're working towards. Um, also, just more kind of conscious awareness of what their learning goals are. I find that a lot of the time teachers don't really know where they're headed <laughs> before they even know how they're going to get there. Um, and, and I think, again, that's a place that the textbooks often stand in for. So actually, I think that by reducing, what I found is by reducing reliance on the textbook, you actually force the teachers to to be more conscious about where they're going because the, the textbook isn't their only beacon yes. anymore uh so i think that those two things kind of tie in together but um i'm also very aware of how much work i have to do with some teachers to get them to realize some of these things and because again you know i want where possible when i'm working with teachers i want to apply the same approaches as i do with my students so i want the teachers to be making these realizations for themselves as well. I want them to be, you know, kind of going, go, to, making that progress uh, through realization and through through ex exposure and things as well um, in order for it to take hold. What I found is when you tell a teacher what you want them to do, they do exactly what you want. And then as soon as some scenario arises, they're lost. Whereas if you work with teachers uh, to identify the reasoning behind approaches and what works and what doesn't work in terms of how people learn and how they don't learn, then they're much more uh, able to, to apply the, the craft as it were in a variety of scenarios and it's just far more effective. But obviously there's a massive investment required there. And also I just, you know, to be blunt, I don't think all of the teachers that I've met would necessarily be able to handle the amount of creativity that's required there. Uh, a great many would, 
but also, you know, a good chunk of the teachers um, just, I think, not necessarily equipped for that. So, I mean, do you have an idea of the pathway towards that? Is this a, you know, how do we get there, you think? Yeah, um, I, I, it's certainly not fair to expect a teacher to make the syllabus and the materials. Right, exactly right. Um, yeah. It's utterly unfair. Um, it requires uh, commitment from the bosses uh, and from uh, the institutions and so on. Um, I, incidentally, I, I absolutely agree with you. It, uh, for teacher trainers to go in and tell teachers what you really should be doing is this and that and yeah, the other. Yeah, as soon as yeah. you eat less, they'll, <laughs> they'll right. go back to the way, you know, yeah. and that's um, absolutely right. You have to get um, teachers' experience, you have to get them reflective, you have to get them thinking about, now, why do you teach the way you teach? Is it because yeah. that's what you're used to? Is it because you think it works right. or uh, work towards um, a realignment? But um, in order to move away from course books, and towards what I think is a better way, which is TBLT, then um, I don't know, you see, because it's such a, um, uh, such a business, it's, a, it's so yeah. commercialized yeah. that you're up against these really huge forces. You mentioned yourself, um, Cambridge University yeah. Press is hugely important in examining uh, and in training. So it's this sort of um, hydra you know, there's many heady things, and they're all inter interlinked, and they all work together, and it's extremely difficult to challenge them. So I think probably the best way is to do first what you, you're, you're doing, to suggest um, ways that you can move away from a, a strict version of following the course book step by step, and to try and, you know, get a bit of room to manipulate yeah, right, right. freedom and a bit more emphasis on um, community stuff. That's the first thing. Um, secondly, to do what you're doing as well is, is to, to, to talk about it, to raise the issue. Right. Yeah. Question right. this hegemony to say, well, are, are we sure that this is the best way? Are these tests and the consequence, you know, and so on to, to, to you know, get people talking about it. And then I think um, the third thing is, is at a local level to try to find teachers who who kind of you know kindred spirits, if you like, for people who yeah, yeah, yeah. people who are not. Um, and then I think the final thing I was reading this morning, Philip Kerr. I don't know if you know him. He's an absolutely brilliant blog. I think it's called Adaptive Learning ELT. No, um, he's tremendous. And today okay. he he uh, he's just done one on uh, well-being. Okay. Um, which is, um, and taking that to pieces, you know, deconstructing, it's just a sort of waffle, right. <clears throat> very popular waffle, well-being, you know, think positive. Um, but he actually um, did a tremendous job on reconciling. But anyway, um, what uh, Philip uh, often says, and I think he's, you know, is where... Um, course book driven ELT will probably get dismantled not by the force of a stronger argument by reason yeah. and by us persuading people oh yeah we agree GLT is much better but by the forces of um, the market and capitalism and development of neoliberalism 
especially now in the time of COVID-19, yeah. I think that might lead to a collapse and yeah. might even learn, lead to something worse where the teacher is more and more um, put under pressure, <coughs> more and more works, <coughs> excuse me, in a precarious way. No, no fixed salary, no fixed job, and portfolio right, right, awful right, bits right, and pieces. Right. And um, more and more um, computerized learning takes place where mm -hmm. we have things like Duolingo, you know, all these uh, ways that, that build on a certain idea of language learning that again is completely wrong. So I yeah. think um, in, a, in a lot of ways uh, where the, the, the crisis we're facing now is that one of, you know, classroom-based learning is quite, very much under, under, under pressure. Yeah. Um, and the, the question is, what will replace it? Um, if we're lucky, more individualist, more individually uh, orientated, more um, needs analysis based, more, um, you know, lots of different ways of going about it. Yeah. That, if we're lucky, but if we're yeah. unlucky, it will be. Uh, people learning English by uh, twiddling on their on their smartphones. Yeah, more and more apps and things like that. I wonder what you think um, regarding <clears throat> nearing as much as we can. Of course, it seems to be a goal on some level. I think we should hold. You know, working towards an idea of you know some kind of ideal approach to teaching. However kind of varied and vast that might be rather than you know this is the book some some kind of you know series or, or, or set of approaches um, seems to me to be more a case of weeding out the things that we find don't work so gradually adding to the list of things okay well let's stop doing this let's stop doing that this thing seems to be working so we'll carry on with that until eventually we'll have still quite a broad set I think of things that work and things perhaps that work in some situations but not so much in other situations and so they remain a part of the arsenal as it were and just but just gradually getting rid of things that we want to stop doing um is that is that a, the process that, that you've seen i it's a mark well i think it's a terrific uh methodology for for sorting there uh absolutely right um this is <laughs> in a way the basis of um Karl Popper's scientific method yeah. is precisely um, that we that this asymmetry between truth and falsehood. Yeah. We will never know what's true, but it's very easy uh, to find what's false. Right. So I think, and, and this incidentally even extends into ethics. It's quite hard to say what's utopia right we all yeah. agree that certain things are Dista wrong yeah Dista yeah absolutely uh, hitler and the death cat and so on and so on yeah we, yeah of course yeah we, so it's much easier as you say to get say all right we're pretty sure that this doesn't work this is inefficacious yeah. yes yeah. this is uh kind of um you know so yes let's get rid of this let's get rid of mm -hmm. this let's get rid of this let's there seem to be a very good way of we, you know, because it's easier for us to agree on that kind of thing than yeah, to agree yeah. exactly where we should go. So I think that's yeah. a, 
a very good way of doing it. What I think also is this idea of just much more um, flexibility, uh, uh, by which I mean, you know, to try and get away from um, what is it called, teaching English for no apparent reason. <laughs> right. Yeah. Tenor, yeah. The tennis yeah, school. Right. Um, and to try to make it a bit more uh, focused. So not exactly ESP, not exactly EAP or anything. Well, even the needs least, analysis that you mentioned. Exactly. Some yeah. attention to needs analysis so yeah, that you yeah. kind of narrow the domain a little bit so that then you, you start to do things more realistically, yeah. not this sort of general... As we said before, well, you're just, I think you're just helping your students do the things that they want to be able to do rather than spending so much time telling students how to do things that you think they ought to be able to do because it's on the curriculum and they often don't care. Exactly. <laughs> so their, their motivation uh, drops, progress is slow because yes. they're not motivated. Um, and also the, the things they do are not so generic, you know, it's not yeah. a phone call, <laughs> right, a meeting. Right, right. Okay, you know, where the language is just, if you, if you actually say, okay, we're going to do, let's say business English, or we'll, we'll do, um, you know, uh, human, no, not them, um, uh, market development, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and now, then when you do a phone call, well, it has a lot more, you know, you can get yeah. a bit nearer to what people yeah, right. actually say yeah, in that right, context. Exactly. You know, yeah. because a phone call between two people in that area is very different from a phone call yeah, between exactly another, right. you know, yeah. just... Or two doctors or... Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, yeah. yeah so absolutely. to the extent that you can get away from this tenor, you know, this teaching English for no obvious reason, like the, phrase, uh, yeah. the general English, you know, and try yeah. and move a little bit, you know, so you start with... Okay, you might not be able to do the detailed needs analysis that uh, right. Long suggests to, to identify target time, but you, you step in that direction, you know, to try and move away and, and to, okay, who are these people uh, I've got in front of me? Or what, what is this group? What is this class? What is this, you know, uh, and to try and move towards a, an appreciation of that and find out things that are really, uh, you know, interesting and important for them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not, oh, well, I said, you know, because the other problem is if you ask them, they, they obviously, perfectly reasonably, they say, well, I don't know, you're the bloody teacher. <laughs> yeah, um, right. You know, uh, which is fair enough. Yeah. So you have to have a slightly different idea of needs analysis, that it isn't right. asking, asking the student, what do you want to do, which is a, not a completely unfair question. Yeah, it's, it's getting information. Well, I find, yeah, I find rather than you know the the question of what do you want to learn is the is the <laughs> error I think, but rather yeah. what I find works is something more along the lines of what do you want to be able to do, right? What are exactly. the capabilities that you want exactly. to have? Exactly. Well, I want That's to be able exactly to take an interview and get a job and work in this. Okay, yeah. well, good. We can work towards that, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there always is the social. I'm you know I've done lots of business courses. Um, and very often they say towards the end, well, this is all great, you know, but actually um, my main problem is not the business meeting, it's the dinner afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd be no help there, unfortunately. So I think it is important to include social English. Yeah. Oh, yeah, uh, of course. Yeah. You know, you, you, uh, we at uh, Saudi occasionally did 
one of we 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 arranged dinner parties, right. and um, you know half were um, teachers. Right, right, right. Not exactly in disguise, but certainly you know. But not, you've got that exchange you know, of natural, yeah, right. Sitting in, but and and we videoed it all. And uh, we actually had them have a meal, you know. Wow, yeah. And I was, and I'd say to the waiter, "What did he ask for? He, he wants to see." I said, "Give him, give him the call, you know." Right. Off. Okay. Yeah. And see yeah, how okay. he did. I'm sorry, right, I didn't right. order, you know. And then you have somebody in the order who, you know, one of the people saying um, something awkward, you know. Yeah. Right. Uh, to see how the and, how they react. And then you have a feedback the next week. It's okay. When you got your soup, oh, <laughs> how could you have dealt with that? You know, what could you have done? And, and when the yeah, person yeah, said, yeah. Uh, "Hello, say no," <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, how could you have dealt with that? You know, yeah. Um, yeah. So that's the sort of thing. Um, oh, that's brilliant! I like that. Yeah. They, they do, you do need some attention to general social socialising um, English. It's yeah, not only yeah. the, the business presentation and the. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the negotiation of all that yeah oh no i like that i I'm, I'm all for getting language as applied and and in fact i, I find myself working more and more with non-language teachers lately because i'm out here in indonesia working with schools here um you know most of the teachers i work with now are not english teachers anymore but and, and so the idea of bringing application into the classroom or into the learning process um is is one i'm particularly uh, particularly interested in um i guess we're coming we've been going for a while now yeah. um if you want to say just before we finish if you want to say a little bit more perhaps about what it is you're doing right now and and, and the course that you're offering or, or or you know what what where people can find you and your work and things like that Yes, I'll um, I'll give you a um, link to the website where it is. Oh, yeah, Essentially, good, good. Um, I am working with uh, Neil McMillan, and Neil McMillan is the president of a co-op, uh, a collection of 20 now, I think the membership's up to 20 teachers in the Barcelona um, area. Okay. Um, and the co-op, uh, pools resources. They uh, pay to have uh, ongoing sort of teacher education development. They, they invite experts to come and talk to them about whatever they're interested in. Um, okay. Most of them have a sort of portfolio, you know, some are right. doing private classes, some are doing in company, some are doing teacher training, etc. Well, um, a few years ago, uh, Neil asked me to come and talk about TBLT. Mm -hmm. So I did that and we all got very enthusiastic about it. And um, I uh, worked with Neil particularly, and we decided two years ago to offer a course for um, uh, teachers, experienced teachers, on okay. task-based learning based on Mike Long's uh, right, okay. version. So that's what we do. We've now we've done two uh, editions of that course, and we'll do a third one starting in uh, at the end of September, early October. Okay. So okay. Uh, subscription is over. So that's what I'm doing with Neil, um, and I think uh, your uh, viewers, your audience, would be interested to hear what uh, have a look at his page. Have a look at the sort of things that they're doing. Uh, I'm a member, but Neil's the, the big. Uh, right, okay, I see. Uh, 
for sure. And also to have a look at the um, the, the, the TBLT course sure. that uh, we'll soon be offering. Good. Yeah, I mean, we'll put links for that in the in you know down there somewhere with the video. Um, so that's good. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, you talk, talk there about the co-op and also mentioned, uh, you know, you used the word community a couple of times earlier as well. But what I think is needed, um, and maybe this is sort of, I guess what you're already doing locally, what I'd like to see on a much larger scale is a community for teachers um, where essentially conversations like you and I are having now and like I'm trying to have on a weekly basis with, with teachers and educators from around the world, I'd like these to be uh, something that you know is happening more commonly and more frequently and also something that's uh, happening on a uh, a more collective level not just you know two people but but you know maybe 50 people engaging in discourse and, and, and conversations and, uh, and 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 you know kind of expanding to a much larger network I think that's the way again talking earlier about how we achieve or how we move towards this ideal of you know whether it's task based or an eclectic approach or a more kind of teacher uh, conscious approach um, I think it's perhaps through conversations and through some kind of a, a network and a community like that I don't know how to build that just yet but that's, uh, that's something I'd like to see and maybe uh, maybe it can grow from something you're already doing out there uh, perhaps well I, I quite agree I think local local efforts uh, and then of course we need uh, a network to join them all up yeah. Um, and um, good luck to you with all your work. And um, it's really, I, I think that's, that's the way we're going to do it. We're, you know, local stuff uh, joined together is, is about the only chance we've really yeah, got I think so too. to rival yeah. um, the, the evil forces that be. Yeah, no, I think you're right there, Jeff. All right, brilliant. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Oh, really um, good to and, talk to uh, you. Yeah, likewise, uh, it's been a pleasure. And um, I, I look, well, I don't really look forward to it, but anyway, I'd be interested to see the video that results. Yeah, sure. Uh, uh, hopefully, we'll uh, we'll see some we'll see some feedback and we'll get a conversation started uh, around uh, it. I hope. All right, brilliant. Okay. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Speak again. Care, yeah, you too. Bye now.